Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Frank Pizor. So without further ado, here he is. It's good to be back here at Harvest. Actually, haven't been at a Sunday worship service at Harvest uh, since August 9th. So it's a little bit different to be back here after being at another church. I don't want to say anything. The last church that I spoke at two weeks in a row was literally about a minute away from my house by walking. So, uh, and then a half a minute back because I cut through my neighbor's yard when I was going home every time. Because they go to church on Sundays and I don't want to, you know, cross over while they're all getting ready. But when they're at church, I could. That's why there was a difference. Man, is it nice to just be so close. (laughs) But no offense. I love all of you. I love being here. Uh, We wanted to pray for our college-age ministry, which we call our greenhouse ministry. And uh, basically, it's college-age students. We normally meet a lot in the summer, only because that's when everybody else is home. Usually, except for Amanda today, uh, they're at U of I, uh, hanging out there. And then we have uh, my son Tim at Northern. But basically, it's a U of I sort of driven ministry. And then when they all come back, we get to spend a lot of time together. So I wanted to pray for them as the new year began. And uh, we will be losing uh, one of our greenhouse members for about six months as Sarah heads off to Montana, and then who knows where after that. So uh, she's going to the uh, DTS, which is a YWAM Youth with Mission. And uh, so she's going to be there for three months and then go overseas wherever they send her, right? It could be anywhere based on the needs. So she could end up in who knows where land. And uh, so we just want to pray for them. Uh, reading from <clears throat> the Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 5, verse 13 reads, You are the salt of the earth. And verse 14 says, You are the light of the world. So as we pray for them, I just want to focus on those two things. Why don't we pray? Our Father in heaven, we are just so grateful for who you are and the things that you have done in our lives. We are grateful that you are active, always, doing something, drawing people to you. Our prayer now for those who are in our college age group, Greenhouse, that wherever they go, whether it's at U of I or Northern, off to Montana or even overseas, even at Moody, that they will be salt and light. Father, may may they be the type of followers of Jesus who provide people with a taste to see that you are good. That through them, people are drawn to you. Father, we would ask as they begin a new semester that for some of them, they may come across people and teachers who might not even believe in you and go so far as to mock you. Father, help them to stand strong. That even in the midst of whatever they experience in classrooms, in dorm rooms, and wherever they are on campus, that they might be light. That through them, people might be able to see you for who you are, your kindness, your goodness, your compassion, 
Yet that it might also see your holiness. Father, we ask that our students would be able to stand strong, stand firm, stand firm in you. Finding you to be a rock, a refuge, a stronghold. We'd ask that you would draw them to your word, that they might find that your word is good. That it strengthens their hearts. Father, we'd ask too for their purity. Purity of relationships, purity in relationships, purity of life. Father, we ask that with all of the things that are going around, all of the temptations that are so easily distracting, that cloud our view of you, that they would walk in the light and be able to fix their eyes on you, the author and perfecter of their faith. May they find you. May they focus on you. May their hearts embrace you, be filled with you, overflowing to all those who are around them. Father, we ask, too, that you would bear fruit not only in their lives, but through their lives. That others might experience your work. You're drawing people to you. That they might know your salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, if you want to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And we're working through a series on life on life ministry. And Paul, pouring his life into Timothy, is now going to pour some words of advice for him on how to be a minister of the gospel. I don't know if you're like me, but you might have used this before, but some of Jesus' greatest criticism was towards the religious establishment. We could agree with that, right? A lot of the rebuking that he did was towards those who were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious establishment. That's something that we grasp onto. It's something that when we're dealing with issues as followers of Christ that we often bring up. I think there's in some ways, and I could be wrong, a corollary that goes with that is that we cannot expect much from the unbeliever in following God. Which makes sense, right? I mean, if you don't have the Spirit within you, I can't expect someone to actually worship God. It's just not possible. But the problem with that corollary is if we leave it there, we might end up doing what Paul is advising Timothy not to do. Because what Paul is telling Timothy is to preach the whole gospel. And sometimes when we say that we don't expect unbelievers to act like believers, which does make sense, we get to a place where the implication is that God never judges those who are unbelievers. But I think what we're going to see in these verses is that judgment still stands, and that's the part of us needing to understand and share the gospel, because if we only tell the unbeliever, I understand that you cannot believe and follow God and leave it there, they walk away feeling, then I'm okay. And so Paul, in Life on Life, is trying to get Timothy to see it's not okay. Because there is a sense where God does judge those and will ultimately judge those who do not believe. So let's look at this. So the first thing that I want us to do is just let's read the verses. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. It reads this way. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. 
We also know that the law is not made for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. That conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. What's the context? The context is Ephesus was a very immoral city. There was a lot of idolatry going on, a lot of sexual immorality. And into this situation comes Pastor Timothy, a young guy, working with this Ephesian church, trying to help them grow. And so Paul is writing to him, life on life, and trying to say, listen, here are some things you need to know on how to run the church. If you're going to do church right, this is what you need to do. And he starts out immediately, Paul does, in the context of the first few verses, and says to them, listen, there are false teachers who are among you who are teaching a gospel that is not the gospel. As you read those verses, they're talking about things about genealogies and all these other myths from the Old Testament that aren't necessarily a part of Scripture. And what they're saying is this is God's will. And what they're doing is they're teaching people a new gospel, which is based on works and not the gospel itself. Now, these guys weren't just anybody. They were scholarly people. They were studying the word and they were studying the word and they wanted, I would think or imagine, that perhaps based on the purity of their motives, they really wanted to help people know God, and they were probably those that didn't care less about God and just wanted to make money off the whole thing. They were basically raising questions. What they were doing is they were looking at things like genealogies and trying to pick things out of these genealogies and say, from these genealogies, this is what we're going to believe. So let me kind of give you an example. If you look at verse 1, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's what they would do. They would look at that second verse and say, this is why every church, to be a successful church, needs at least three pastors. Why are you laughing? Grace, mercy, and peace. You need a pastor of grace, you need a pastor of mercy, and you need a pastor of peace. If you're going to really truly be a church, this is what needs to happen. You have to have those. Otherwise, if you don't have three pastors, you're not really a good church. And isn't it cool that we have three pastors? We're a good church. That's kind of the things that they were doing. They were just making these allegorical assumptions that would come out of nowhere and say, hey, this is what it is. Here's one example just kind of a crazy example, it goes like this. The patriarchs, in looking at the book of Job, the guys that were hanging around with Job, those three friends represent the heretics. <clears throat> he goes on to say this, the seven sons of Job are the twelve apostles. Okay, I, I'm not really good with math, but I don't know how you get seven equals twelve. But somehow he did that, that's the way they were teaching it. But he goes on, he says, the 7,000 sheep are God's faithful people and his 3,000 humpback camels are the depraved Gentiles. That's what they were doing. Does that make sense to you? That doesn't make sense. And yet people were then pouring all over scripture and they're looking at it and trying to figure out that, wow, here's, wow, this is a really cool insight. I have something. Like I had this insight about three pastors. This is a really neat insight. So not everybody walks away and says, well, if you're going to have a church, you've got to have three pastors. And so now people are getting confused because what really is the gospel? We're not really sure because, you know what? There are so many hidden meanings in God's word 
that you really got to study it like we do in order to really know God like you're supposed to know God. Because if you don't get what we're doing, then you're really not getting God. And so the people in Ephesus are starting to go, whoa, hold on a second. This is a little bit different. But man, it sure is interesting. Right? This is interesting, cool stuff that we want to pay attention and we want to get into. And so Paul in Life on Life says, Timothy, listen, you got to get a handle on this because these guys are using the law Old Testament, moral law, and they're making up things as they go along. You know, later on in 1 Timothy, they're going to say things like, don't eat these certain foods, don't get married, don't do this, don't do that. And Paul says those things are doctrines of demons because they're making the law and they're making something else of it. Timothy, my advice to you is to get a handle on this. Deal with it right away because, listen, we know that the law is good. If used properly. So here's my first point. It's this. God says the law is good. I don't say the law is good. I personally don't like the law. I don't like moral law. It means that I have to be moral. Now, mind you, I'm not going to go out killing people and stuff like that. But I mean, there's just some things that you just want to be free to do. Get rid of the moral law and I can do whatever I want, which is what Old Testament Israel did, right? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But Paul says, listen, the law... Is good. Now, it's not it's Paul writing it, but Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit. So God endorses a political season that we're in. He endorses. He says, I approve of this message. The law is good if used properly. If used properly. Here's his issue then. He goes on. He not only says that is important. It's important for us to know that the law is good because even in the Psalms, this is what the psalmist says about the law and saying that it's good. He says this in Psalm 1 verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, much more than fine gold, sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. And finally, Psalm 119, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all day long. So the law is good. Now, a lot of us, we don't like the law. And let alone don't even like to share the law with an unbelieving world because it makes us seem like judgmental people. I think we need to get to a place where we can say the law is good. I'm not judging you personally. I'm probably in the same boat in some way, shape, or form. All I want to tell you is this is what God says. So really what we do is we have to understand that the law is good if it's used properly. These people in Ephesus were using it improperly and leading people astray. And Paul says, Timothy, get a handle on it. Right away, get a handle on it. So understand that the law is good. But the law is good because it helps the sinner see his or her need for God. In other words, their need for a sinner. Because look what he then says. Okay, the law is good. Verse 9. We also know the law is not made for the righteous But for lawbreakers, rebels, the ungodly, sinful, unholy, and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, murderers, adulterers, perverts, slave traders, liars, and perjurers. In other words, what he's saying is, listen, guys, the law is good because it helps the sinner see their sin. Let me give you just like a trivial example. I know it's another driving example, so please forgive me with that as well. But it was uh, Friday, and Kaylee was late for school. And uh, the thing about her school, and I don't know if you other parents have to experience the drop-offs, those annoying parents, and if you're one of them, I'm going to be honest with you, you need to hear the law. (laughs) But those annoying parents that have to have their kid dropped off at the first spot, okay? 
There's 50 feet where you can drop this kid off. If little Johnny or little Susie gets out of the car and has to walk an extra 20 feet in the middle of such nice weather that we have, please let them do it. You don't have to have them in that first spot. It's not a safety issue. Do you know what I'm saying? It's very frustrating. So we're leaving our house and we're late. And Kaylee's freaking out. I don't want to be late. I don't want to be late. So the nice parent that I am, when we come up to the place where this, we're supposed to get in line, I look and I look down the street and there's like 30 cars that are backed up. And immediately in my mind, the calculation is she's going to be late. Because these people are annoying. Nobody like me, when, my, when I get to the place where you can drop her off, I say, Kaylee, get out. Love you, love you. She's out. It's good. Other people, and, and you know, four, five, six different stops. Little Johnny and little Susie still in the car because mom and dad have to get to that final spot. Drives me nuts. So I took a shortcut. And it went around another way, and she got in on time. But here's the thing. In the midst of this shortcut, you're only supposed to go one way, which I didn't know. And I was going the right way the first time. Going the right way the first time. But I make this three-point turn into somebody's driveway, back up and start pulling out. And in the corner of my eye, I see this teacher yelling at me. I don't know what she said, but I sure it wasn't nice. Okay? It's probably something like, you idiot, what are you doing? Don't you know you're breaking the law? You should get a ticket. Stop. I went on anyway. I gave that smile and waved and went along. Not because I'm rude, because I said, oh my gosh, I hope she doesn't get my license plate because I don't want to get a ticket. I would like to tell you that my initial motive was I didn't want to go down the street and be a part of that backup so that the other kids could get there on time. But I'd be lying because I was in a hurry and I wanted to get somewhere. The real motive was I was selfish, and so I did something that was wrong. I didn't know it was wrong. In fact, if that teacher had said nothing, I would probably do it again on Monday. (laughs) Because of speed, time, hurry, right? Here's what I'm saying is the law points out our wrongdoing. It is wrong to go down a one-way street, because it's a two-way street during the day, but it is wrong to go down that one-way street and then make that three-point turn and come around. That is wrong. I did not know that. I would do it again, and I would keep doing it because it goes so much faster than waiting in line watching people drop off little Johnny and Susie at the first spot. But now that I know it's wrong, I'm not going to do it again. Because the law points out some problems. Listen, don't you realize when you make that three-point turn and you back up, there might be a little kid that you don't see and you hit. They're not just trying to be power-hungry people. They're just trying to say, for a safety issue, for your safety, for somebody else's safety, the law says you cannot do this. And so the law is good because it says to the sinner, you have sinned and you need God. And so when the church says that Jesus' greatest criticism is towards the church, I want to say, based on what Paul is telling Timothy, I have to disagree. True, in the Gospels, that's who he rebuked the most. But we don't get to see a lot of that stuff behind the scenes where Jesus is actually talking about people's sin. Because why would Jesus just simply say, hey, everybody, I love you, and not talk about their sin? Because what does that do? It helps us all say, yes, God loves me. You don't care about my sin. I can live however I want. Paul is saying, no, this law, the very law that Jesus preached and even used to rebuke the religious establishment correctly is also the same law that rebukes the sinner and says, sinner, wake up. You have need of God. 
It's not God crushing people like little bugs and saying, hey, there's a sinner. Woo! Yeah, that was really cool. I love crushing them. It's God's way of saying, I love you, and I need to tell you there is a separation, and so I must remind you that there is sin that needs to be dealt with in order for us to be in a right relationship. There's no confusion about myths, genealogies, and all these crazy interpretations that people are coming up with. The straightforward, simple gospel is that men and women have offended God with their sin, and there is a Savior whose name is Jesus, and he has come in the world to set them free. So Paul says, listen, the law is good, but understand, it is not for the righteous, but the unrighteous. Not to judge for the sake of judging, but to judge in order to understand what true love is. You see, the good news is actually bad news at first. Does that make sense? It's bad news. You have to say, I have done wrong. I have sinned. Part of my story is I grew up in a religious family. I didn't end up doing all the drugs and the rock and roll and all that other stuff that people think you have to have a testimony for in order to be a really spiritual Christian. My problem was not the things that I was doing. My problem was my heart because it was all about myself. Not about God. Not about others. I needed to see that selfishness was a sin. But I don't see that unless I look into the law. And read the law and understand the law. It's bad news. It's really hard to admit that you're selfish. How many of us have spouses get into arguments with our spouses? Right? And what do you have to say when you're wrong? I'm sorry. I was wrong. One of my wife's biggest complaints was, I'll say, I'm sorry I was wrong. But here's what you did. (laughs) Right? That's wrong too. That's not really saying I was wrong. It's saying I was wrong, but so were you. Which, you know... Usually it's true, right, Hannah? (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. Selfishness. Putting God on the throne. How many of you guys have gone to the CG retreats and you've watched, not putting God, putting ourselves on the throne where God belongs? How many of you have seen the Gods at War videos? How many have gone through them, right? We're learning that the issue is not the gods themselves, but our own selfishness and how that is expressed through those gods in our lives. So what is Paul saying? He says, listen here, as you read this, he says, we know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers, rebels, the ungodly and the sinful, the unholy and the irreligious. In other words, what we're going to see is Paul's going to go through the back door and he's going to talk about the Ten Commandments. What's the Ten Commandments? The moral law. And the first section talks about what? Put God first. But when you look at all of these people, what do you have? You have lawbreakers who are deliberately disobedient towards God. You have rebels, those who don't submit to any authority, even God. The irreverent, those who withhold their due from God. The impious, those who break normal laws of decency. For instance, one of the commentators said it's the kind of person that would marry their sister or their mother. The polluted, who are profane. In other words, what he's saying, listen to all of these people. Their first focus is to be disobedient towards God. And so they need the moral law, which says, you shall put no other gods before me. Whatever that God is whether it's an idol that is actually wooden or an idol that might be money power success whatever it is do not put them before me and so paul is saying listen there are people and probably these teachers who are teaching this funky sort of law who have gone so far as to say listen 
we don't even really care about God. They're unrighteous. The law says, no, God comes first. If God is not first, then you have a sin problem. And that's what makes the law so good. Because if you don't realize that God must come first, then you don't have a sin problem, per se, in your own thinking. And if you don't have a sin problem, thus you don't have a need for the gospel. Because you don't need a Savior. And if you don't need a Savior, you can't find the Savior and ultimately find eternal life and salvation because you've never come to a Savior because you don't think you need the Savior, yet you really do. And so what happens? The law comes up and says, you screwed up. You might, doing, might be doing all the horrible things other people are doing. You're not as bad as them. I mean, there's some really bad people out there. Picked up a book from the library called The Martyr Song. And uh, based on some stuff that happened in uh, Bosnia years and years ago. And as I'm reading this book, the one um, antagonist is a nasty man. And, and basically what he's doing is, is he's coming to this town that seems untouched by the Civil War and he forces these women to knock over the uh, stone crosses of the dead, you know, their relatives and stuff like that. And then, because they're Christians, he tells them, you must carry your cross. And so these women are walking back and forth in the seminary, cemetery. <laughs> wow, sorry. <laughs> Is that a Freudian slip? Uh, cemetery, not seminary. And they have these heavy stone crosses walking back and forth, and he mocks them. He's mocking God. And he says, if you really believe in God, and God is a Savior, you will endure, and you will not drop those crosses, because the second that cross drops, I will beat your priest. One lady ultimately drops the cross, and I'm only uh, partially through, and so they beat the priest. This man is mocking God. He's mocking God. And without the law, he would not understand that he's mocking God. And the response that these people are giving him is, what you're doing is wrong because the law of love, another moral law, says this is not how Christians are supposed to treat each other. But he doesn't see that. Why? Because he doesn't see his need for the law. In a sense, he must feel himself above the law. Or that there is no law to even worry about because he doesn't believe in God. Well, Paul would say, listen, for people like that, they are unrighteous. He's not a righteous man. He needs the law because the law has to say, hey, dude, here's your sin, man. Own it. And they're not saying, hey, we hate your guts. We can't wait till you get judged. I hope that you face God and he knocks you around like you've never been knocked around in eternity. And I can't wait to get to heaven because one of the rejoicing things I'm going to do is when you get judged, I'm going to go praise God. That's not what they're saying. It's not even what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is get knocked down now. Face your sin now. Recognize that you have placed yourself on the throne where God belongs. Do that now. Be judged, unbeliever, but... But we'll get to that later. He goes on then. He's not only talking about their attitudes, but then he talks about their actions. This is the second part of the Ten Commandments in dealing with people. For those who do not honor their father and mothers, thus kill them. For murderers, adulterers, perverts, slave traders, liars, perjurers... All that is contrary to sound doctrine. In other words, basically Paul saying anything that's sin, anything is not sound doctrine. None of it. What he's really saying is it's not just about theology. I can sit up here and I can tell you, here's the four spiritual laws, here's the gospel. But what we'd like to do is divorce 
the words with our lives. And the kind of thing where we go, hey, man, don't look at me. Look at Jesus. Which is our way of saying, yeah, I'm a sinner, and I've accepted it, and I love it, and I ain't changing. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying there's a problem with your actions. The law exposes that and says, this is wrong. Face it. Admit it. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, what are you saying? He would say something very similar. You guys who have murdered your parents, you guys who are slave traders, liars, perjurers, adulterers, perverts, you have done that, but in Christ Jesus, you've been redeemed. You've been bought back. You've been freed. You now know God. So the issue isn't the fact that you have this attitude against God. It's not that you have these actions that you commit against God. The bigger issue that Paul will then say is, listen, to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which he entrusted to me, what he's saying is there is a gospel that is so great that is out there that the greatest immoral mocker of God can one day wake up and say, I have sinned. God. Rescue me. God, save me. And they can be saved. That's craziness. That's why the cross of Christ is such foolishness. Has anyone ever asked you, what happens if Hitler, before he committed suicide, said, Jesus, I need you. Come into my life and be my savior. Have you ever had anyone ask you that question? Anybody? Am I the only person who hangs out with people that are Nazis or something? Nobody? Nobody? So, no, did you raise your hand? Yeah. And, and my answer is, that's the thing about God. Yes. And immediately, shut door. Right? Because a man so evil can actually find Christ does not make sense to people. Because they don't understand the gospel. Because the gospel says, the infinite God... The infinite Christ is infinite and thus can cover an infinite amount of sin. So it doesn't matter if it's Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot, and any other genocidal maniac existed, all came together in the end and said, we need Christ because of the infinite sacrifice of Christ. Forgiveness could be extended to all of them and we could all be singing praises with them in heaven. Doesn't make sense. But Paul says, dudes, that's the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Isn't that glorious that the sinner can be saved? That's craziness. Because the reality is the sinner should not be saved. The unbeliever should not be saved, but they should be judged. But because of said God doesn't just judge them because he's got nothing better to do. He judges them in their sin and then offers a solution. I mean, I guess it would be kind of like this if, if, if uh, Tim's at Northern gets a new credit card, and spends money like crazy on his credit card. Because you know how credit cards work, right? I mean, I know you do. But as you do that, you swipe. There's no money being passed, right? You don't have any record of that. I mean, who really keeps records of their purchases every day? I mean, a few of you do. That's okay. It's normal. Okay, it's not normal, but so I don't check my credit card bill until the, I open it, right? How many are with me on that other than Dave? Right? I have no idea. When they go ask for a receipt, I think to myself, okay, I'm going to ask for a receipt because they're up to something evil, but I don't even take the receipts. I don't keep the receipts. I throw them out. I just wait till that day, right? But imagine Tim just racks up this huge debt he can't pay. I turn around and I say, what? Am I going to go, oh, Tim, I love you. 
thank you for just creating a greater debt for our family. That is just so wonderful. Can you spend more, please? No, I'm going to say what? I would like to say this, you idiot. What is wrong with you? But I'm going to pay that debt. That's what the law is. The law is good if used properly because it reminds us, dudes, we have sinned. We have fallen short of the glory of God. Okay? It's not good works, but it is a gift. It is something that God does. It is something that God has done, not something that you do. And so this law brings up all this junk and says, look at yourselves. Whether you are 14 years old, where's Chris? 50 years old, we're the same age now, brother. No more making fun of me for eight more days. It doesn't matter. The glorious gospel proclaims freedom for everybody. And so when these false teachers come along and they try to add works or things or thinking or secret knowledge, Paul says, you better dip that puppy in the bud right now because it's a wrong gospel and those false teachers are going to lead people astray. And to me, it's a scary thing to say or think that something I say might actually affect your eternal destiny in a wrong way. Paul's saying, listen, Timothy, get a handle on this. Tell these guys. The law is good because it shows us our sin. That's why it's good for the unrighteous. So we shouldn't, as Christians, be running around saying, well, you know, Jesus, he, you know, criticized the religious establishment. Let's just look at the church, which to me, I agree with, but I find funny because a lot of people in the church are running around shooting other Christians and going, I'm doing it for Jesus. You know what I mean? Hey, man, uh, Derek, you're teaching false doctrine. Bang, 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 bang. Ooh, man, I got him. I saved the gospel. Well, he's bleeding out. That's not right. Jesus' greatest criticism was, sure, for the religious establishment. Let's say that's true, all right? But Jesus doesn't judge them just to say, hey, you stupid Pharisees and Sadducees, I just want you to know you are hell-bound dudes and you have no hope whatsoever because Acts chapter 6 tells us what? Some of those hell-bound dudes became heaven sent believers of Christ. Jesus wasn't touching the disciples. Hey, man, give me a high five, dude. I really let those guys, I talked some smack to them, right? I straightened them out, right? No, that's not God's intent. Jesus brought the law even to them to say, listen, you need God as well. You should know better that you need God as well, but you don't get it, and thus I rebuke you. But he's not running around shooting them because he wants to say, hey, this is a great thing to do. Because I just love judging people. No, what he says is, I just love people. And so when they're wrong, we bring them the law, we show them the law and what it says, and we work from there because we seek to what? Restore our brother and sister, not run them over with a bus. Make sense? Paul says, the law is good if used properly. It is for the unrighteous. It is for the sinner to see their sin, that they might see their need for a Savior and say, I want Jesus. This glorious gospel is the very thing that brings life to people. And that's what Paul is passing on to Timothy. 
and helping them to understand that doctrine is not just about the theological things that we believe, but it's also about the lifestyle that we live. And the two of them go hand in hand. And that if we're really going to say, I believe the gospel, then we must really believe the implications of the gospel is that we need to live gospel-type lives, which are lives that are salt and light in the community that we live. And I think a few weeks back I shared with you guys that youth pastor, did I do that? maybe I didn't, you know how old people are, they forget things, but didn't I share with you my first youth pastor? Was this just youth group? My first youth pastor? Okay, you guys don't pay attention anyway, right? Who's that old guy? Why are we listening to him? Why can't we have someone young? I digress. I, you know, I'm so digression, I lost where I was at. Something about my old youth pastor, either way. Oh, okay, yeah, I got it, I got it. He had good theology. He was a Moody grad. How can Moody grads not have good theology, right? Anyone with me on an amen on that? Okay, some of you, you guys seem a little leery about Moody. Trust me, it's a good school. Unless you went to Calvin College or Wheaton or something like that. I mean, because Moody's better than both of those schools anyway. But I need the law right now, right? <laughs> but he had a horrible life behind the scenes. Good theology. Horrible life. The gospel says, listen, man, there's good things that are in order. The law is there to show us our sin. Jesus has come to save us from our sins. But it needs to be reflected in our lives. It needs to be reflected in our worship, the way we worship God. It needs to be reflected the way we react and interact with people. Just like we talked about Ephesians 4 a few weeks ago, right? There's a person you know who lives out the gospel when they can give and forgive like Jesus. You cannot proclaim the gospel and say forgiveness is for anyone and everyone who has sinned and then stand over here and say, I will hold on to the sin that you have committed against me and I will not let go until you make a restitution that I am satisfied with and trust me, I'm not very satisfied with what you're restituting right now. That does not work. If you wish to receive a gospel that gives you freedom from everything that you have done against God that is wrong, then in turn, not just the theology is important to understand, but the actual lifestyle that says, then I too will follow in the footsteps of Jesus. I too will carry my cross. And we will come to a place where the gospel says, this is where it comes to, the cross. I have sinned, and you have sinned against me. It's not sweeping it under the carpet. It's saying, you've sinned against me. You've hurt me deeply. But I will forgive. Just as in Christ, God has forgiven me. That's the gospel, dudes. It's not just words, but it's lifestyle. And part of the gospel is understanding that the law, because gospel means good news, is it's bad news first. We admit we have sinned. We admit that we have done wrong. Confessing that Jesus can and does save. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.